Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6. And we're going to see Paul here use this Jewish holiday to describe how we should be walking in holiness in Christ. Now, a few years ago, I got to go on a trip to Israel, which was a ton of fun. It was a study trip, but it was also a missions trip, which is a great place to do a missions trip because you get to use the Old Testament as you're ministering to Jewish people. So, you know, they're, they're halfway there. And so uh, the problem is anytime I fly internationally, I get pulled out of line for security every single time. Because I, when I'm laughing, look really like fun and joyful, but when I'm just sitting there, I look like this. And so I'm in a military age male with a radicalized beard, and so every time I get pulled out. So I get to the airport at DFW, and they pull me out of line for an extra scan. And then I fly to Frankfurt, and they pull me out of line, but they don't do the same thing in Germany that we do here. Here you take off your shoes and you walk through the metal detector. There, a guard pulls me aside to give me a full body pat down. So I'm in a foreign country, I don't speak German, and this guy is just patting, he puts his hand in my waistband and goes around my waist. And I'm like, is this, I knew Germans were a little weird, I didn't know what to do. I don't know if I say nine, like no, or no me gusta. I don't know what I do because I'm just not used to this, right? So later find out that guy didn't even work for the airport. I'm just kidding. I mean, he probably did. I didn't check. I didn't like call, but he probably did. So then I get to Israel, and in Tel Aviv, I get pulled aside again, and they're asking me all these questions and all that. But once I get through all the security, which is hard for some reason for me, we go to Israel. It's an awesome trip. And one of the things that was really surprising is we got to be in the old city of Jerusalem during the Sabbath, what they call the Shabbat. Okay? So the Sabbath is not uh, Sunday. Uh, the Sabbath is actually Saturday, and it begins Friday night. In fact, the early church actually kept the Sabbath as Saturday and then Sunday as a day to worship Jesus. They didn't conflate the two like in later Reformed traditions. And so uh, anyway, so we're there, and it's Friday afternoon, and we're near the Wailing Wall. We're in the old city of Jerusalem, and Jewish people normally are very chill. They kind of keep to themselves. They kind of keep to their own communities. They're, they're very educated. And then all of a sudden, the sun starts to go down and people start screaming and they start playing music and they start drinking and dancing in the street, okay? And so all of these people that were just very calm and very reserved, all of a sudden, they're going nuts. They're dancing in big circles and they're cheering and all this kind of stuff. I saw a rabbi do a flip, Okay? Literally, this old man comes up and just does a somersault on the concrete, okay? Ain't no party like a Jewish party because a Jewish party don't Shabbat. So we're there during the Sabbath and everybody is partying because though they're typically reserved, these are meant to be times of great celebration in honor of what God has done. So you have this not only on certain days that are you know, repeated weekly like the Sabbath, but you also have this with certain holy days. You have this with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You have this with Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, literally the beginning of the year. And and you have this really big festival in Judaism called Passover, which you've probably heard of. Now, Passover, though, is a little bit different because there's somberness and there's sobriety also mixed with joy. It's kind of a little bit of both. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to use this analogy of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we'll talk about that in a second, as a, a kind of Old Testament example for this advice that he's been given the church at Corinth. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the first half of verse six. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great and that we are not, and therefore we need you. We are sinners, we are broken, we cannot do what you've asked us to do, so we thank you that you've done it for us. 
that you have done what we could not do. Would you be with us as we study this text? Help us, uh, help open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, verse 6a, let's take a look here. Starts out with this. Your boasting is not good. Now, that's true, just theologically, that we're commanded not to boast, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, but that's not specifically what he's talking about here. He's not just giving us a list of moral lessons. What he's doing is he's talking about a specific kind of boasting that's been going on at Corinth that Jeff talked about last week. I wanna show it to you. Uh, If you look up a few verses, 1 Corinthians 5, one through two, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. I love that, by the way. When even lost people look at you and say, that's nasty. That's how you know you've gone too far. What is, he, is this man doing? He says this, for a man has his father's wife. So what's going on at Corinth is there's a guy sleeping, most likely with his stepmom. If it was his mom, he would have just said mother. The, the phrase father's wife comes from the Old Testament. It's probably his stepmom. His dad had probably gotten remarried. And this guy has the hots for his stepmom. Now, Paul doesn't just rebuke this man for his perversion. Look at this next phrase and you are arrogant. That's the kind of proud he's talking about when he says your boasting is not good. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, let me explain kind of what's going on because Paul's not just rebuking that man. He's also rebuking the church for boasting. What does he mean by this type of boasting? Jeff last week talked about the social element, how this church is probably a little bit scared to put this person outside of the church. This might be someone of renown. It might be a teacher. It might be someone who's wealthy. But theologically, there's an additional reason that this is going on, and it's this. The Corinthians do not understand Christian freedom. There's something that's gone wrong in their theology. Here's the way they're arrogant. They're saying this. Because we've been saved by Christ, And because we're saved by grace alone, it's fine for this man to sleep with his stepmom because it doesn't really affect anything. Later on, they'll say the same thing. They'll say the food for stomach and the stomach for food. We'd say it today like this. Shake what your mama gave you. If God gave it to you, you should use it. Whether it's a stomach, whether it's your sexual organs, whatever it is, use it. It doesn't affect your spiritual life. And so the kind of arrogance that's going on at Corinth is them thinking, Because I'm saved by Christ, I don't have to follow any sexual ethics. Those are rules, and all rules are bad. And so what's happened is there's been a misfiring when it comes to the issue of Christian freedom. Now, let me explain this. This is really important that you get this. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want. That's how we typically think of freedom. We think of the person who is free as the person who can do whatever they want that they're not constrained by all these other things. They're free to do what they want. Here's the problem with that. Sometimes we want things that are enslaving. Sometimes we want things that are bad. Sometimes we want things that are evil. So freedom in the Bible is not the freedom to do whatever you want because that's like saying I have the freedom to go to jail. It's like saying I have the freedom to be enslaved. Freedom in the Bible is to do what will bring you the highest joy. Freedom in the Bible is to do what's right and good. That's the kind of freedom God has. Let me say it another way. I can do things God can't do. I can lie. I can change. I can be tempted. I can do all kinds of things that God can't do. That does not make me more free than him. Those things are enslavements. Those things are weaknesses. Those things are bad. So God actually has true freedom because he can do what is best. He can do what brings the highest joy. He can do what's good. So the Corinthians here have messed up Christian freedom. Yes and amen, it's true that you are saved sola fide by faith alone and sola gratia, that is by grace alone. Yes and amen. But what that does is that frees you up to walk in a way that will bring the most long-term joy 
It does not free you up to do whatever you want, which actually, by the way, will make you miserable. The people I know that are the most libertine, that don't believe in God and just do whatever they want, are the most anxious, the most miserable. They, they follow fleeting pleasures, but they're just that fleeting. And so that's what's going on here at Corinth. That's the kind of boasting he's talking about. The Corinthians have decided that they will get to pick what is good and bad, that they will get to live life how they want. You ever been to a restaurant called Genghis Grill? You ever been there? This is a restaurant that I kind of like. It's a restaurant named after this great war criminal, Genghis Khan, who assaulted so many people that he has something like 16 million living descendants today, but that's the name of the restaurant. And what you do is you get to pick all the food options. They don't just have set things that you can just order, like I'd like a number four at Whataburger, which by the way is what you should get, but rather you go in and you get to pick what you want. So you get this bowl and then you go to the meat counter and you take those salmonella covered tongs and you put some chicken in there and then you grab the E. coli covered tongs and you put some beef in there and then you move over and you get vegetables and you get some sort of grain with rice or whatever and then you just give them this bowl of mess and they cook it on this big thing that's supposed to be like Genghis Khan's shield, okay? And then you try it, when they're done, they put it back in the contaminated bowl, I'm kidding, they use a different bowl and they bring it to your table and you eat it and 50% of the time you think, this is a terrible combination. I thought crab meat with strawberries would be amazing, but it's not. They should pick. They know the flavors, they know the spices, but when we do it on something that we don't know, it ends up terrible, and that's what's going on with the church at Corinth. They're kind of having this pick and choose morality because they're saved by grace alone, which is true, they think that that is the freedom to do whatever they want, but they don't understand that what they want will hurt them. What they want will rob them of joy instead of actually giving them joy. Verse 6b, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What are we talking about here? Speaking of things that spread and lumps, I got bit by a spider above my eye this week, okay? A venomous spider bit me above my eye, which caused the lymph nodes on the side of my face to swell, and so I had to go to the doctor, okay? And he said, I will most likely live, so we've made it, okay? Now, for whatever reason, I'm more agile and I can stick to walls now, which is pretty cool, but that's, this text has been very... Uh, very, very in my mind uh, this week as we do this. What is he talking about with leaven and lumps and these kind of things? Let's talk a little bit about bread making, if we will. You came here to hear about Jesus. You also learned how to make bread. See how practical the Bible is? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, so this is the, notice this word leaven. This is not the same as yeast, okay? Yeast can be good and wholesome. Here's how you make bread. You take dough and you put some yeast or leaven, we'll talk about leaven in a second, and that causes the dough to rise. That causes it to become spongy and have air pockets in it, and it's what you think of when you think of bread. If you don't use yeast or leaven, you have what is called matzah. You just have like this hard, gross tortilla that's flat, and it's not delicious, okay? So why is he using this imagery of leaven? Here's what would happen. Leaven is different than yeast in that you would take your dough, and you would take some leaven, which is some of the dough from last week that you've let ferment, and you put that leaven in the dough, and you mix it around, and it spreads throughout the dough, and it causes it to become bread. That's how you make bread. Tweet it, okay? Who knew? I knew nothing about this before this. I'm like, what is leaven? I don't know, but now I do, okay? So here's the problem, though, with leaven, especially in the ancient world. 
In the ancient world, you don't have the same sanitation that we have today. You don't have the same hygiene. You don't have the same knowledge of medicine. And so if there's any contaminants, any bacteria, anything bad that gets in that leaven, it will just be passed on and passed on and passed on. So there are certain times in uh, Israel's history where they actually get rid of all the old leaven and they start over. Okay? Now, that's mainly ceremonial, we'll talk about that in a second, but there is also an added health benefit. So why is Paul, with this church that's arrogant in their licentiousness, their sin, and this guy who's sleeping with a stepmom, why is he using this image of leaven and bread? He's using it for two reasons. He's using it as a metaphor for something that is sinful, and he's using it as a metaphor for something that if you leave it unaddressed, it will infect everything else. Let me show you a few passages. Matthew 16, five through six and verse 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven, there's the word, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verse 12. Then they understood that uh, he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So here, leaven is used as an example of something evil, something corrupting, something sinful, like the false doctrine and the false teaching of the Pharisees. But leaven is also used as an example of something small that spreads throughout something larger. Matthew, Matthew 13, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. There it is that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So he's using this imagery because sometimes leaven is a symbol for sin and what's corruption or what's corrupting. And it also is something that spreads throughout everything else. So the point he's trying to make to the church is this. Your sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin affects other people. We have a tendency not to think that. Okay? We think our sin is just between us and God. Your sin hurts other people. I know of churches where God has closed that church's doors where there were several faithful members of that church, but the rest of the church had become leavened, if you want to say it that way. That your sin affects other people. Let's, let's use King David as an example. He sins against God by killing Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba, but he doesn't just offend God. His sin affects Bathsheba. His sin affects David's wife. David's already, uh, his sin affects uh, Uriah. His sin affects Uriah's family. It affects Bathsheba's family. It affects David's kid. David's kid is killed. Okay? God is not punishing that child for David's sin, but rather God is punishing David by killing that child. And not only that, his sin then affects the rest of the nation. So David's little thing, just what he thinks is just his own issue, is actually against a bunch of people. Your sin doesn't just affect you, it affects others, and it affects the church corporately in God's eyes. Okay? Now before we move on, two things that this verse and this text today is not about. First of all, it's not about being negatively influenced by sinful culture. It's about being negatively influenced by sinful people in the church. So we have a tendency sometimes, especially with some of you, to think that the Christian solution is to completely withdraw from the world. We'll only hang out with Christians, we'll only hang out with homeschool families, we'll only watch Christian movies, we'll only read Christian books, we won't have anything to do with lost people. The Bible is gonna say that's not how you deal with stuff. Jesus prays that we would be in the world, but not of it. If you do that, that is why the church is dying universally is because nobody is being salt and light to a lost and dying world. This is a text warning you against sin in the church. Not sin, the sinners are going to sin. I expect them to sin, okay? But rather it's talking about sin in the church. We often reverse this. We withdraw from culture and then we tolerate people in the church claiming to be Christians walking in unrepentant sin. So this is not about withdrawing from culture. Jesus eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. If you're not doing that, you're not like Jesus. 
okay? But Zach, I'll catch the sinnies. No, you won't. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus, okay? The other thing this text is not about, this text is not about just kicking people randomly out of the church who are sinners, or else we would all get kicked out. We're all sinners, and we'll all be sinners until we die. Sinners be sinning. We don't have the option not to sin this side of eternity, okay? And so it's not, if you're someone thinking, oh man, Zach, you're talking about church discipline, and Jeff last week was talking about kicking somebody out of the church. I struggle with sin. Am I going to get kicked out? And the answer is, if you will repent, no, you won't get kicked out. The only time you get kicked out of a church, really, is if you're unrepentant. That's really the only sin that you get kicked out of a church for. It's not habitual sin. It's not sin that you're repenting of. It's not sin that you're fighting. It's unrepentant sin. We at Parkway at several points have had to do excommunication. We've had to fully remove somebody from our church body because of unrepentant sin. Now, just the, the most recent two cases, just to give you an example, one was a guy who was living with his mistress and he would not break up with her. He was married, but he was living with his mistress, kept sleeping, sleeping with her, would not break up with her, kept going back, and we had to say this is unrepentant, and so he was removed. We also recently removed another lady who filed for divorce against her husband and she did not have biblical grounds. He did not physically cheat on her, nor did he physically abandon her. And so when we said, hey, you don't have grounds for divorce, she said, do not talk to me, do not contact me, I don't care, I'm going to get divorced anyway. And so we had to say, that's unrepentance, okay? The thing that kicks you out of the church is not fighting sin. We are here to help fight sin together. It is unrepentance. And at any point, if those people repent, We work through what the process would look like to get them plugged back into the church, either here or somewhere else, but to to have reconciliation, okay? So it's repentant. They decided to kick themselves out, in a sense, and they decide when they get to come back. That's the main issue. So don't think, I need to hide my sin because if people knew, they'd kick me out. Hiding your sin is a great way to get kicked out. Rather, confessing your sin, being open so that other people in community can help fight alongside you. So don't, don't become scared that you think, oh no, I'm a sinner. Me too. Okay, welcome. Look around, left and right, sinners all around. Okay, so that is who's the, the church is not a country club for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. So this is not just talking about people. Notice that this guy is not repentant. The, the church is boasting in his sin. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse seven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's look at that first phrase. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What Paul is gonna do now is he's gonna use the background of the festival of Passover to make his point. Now, let me go over this story with you real quick just in case you don't know. I was talking to my son. We had Easter a few weeks back and I was talking to my son that day and I said, son, tell me what you learned in church about Easter. And he said, it's when Jesus was raised from the dead. I said, that's right, buddy. What else did you learn? He said, there was this big rock and the angels moved it. And I was like, you're you're getting it all right, buddy. And then he said, and then those angels went and killed all those guys. And I said, wait, wait, can you tell me about the last part of that story? Yeah, Jesus was raised and the angels moved the rock and then they went and killed all those guys. And I thought, I've never read that part of the story, but I like that version better, okay? So I had to correct. Now, there is a time where God uses angels to kill. And it's specifically in the Passover. So what is the story of the Passover? So you have Israel who are enslaved in Egypt. They have a taskmaster that they cannot free themselves from. They are very, their whole life is works, if you will. It is just work. It is building up 
you know, bricks and they get less straw and it's difficult and they're being whipped and their life is terrible. So what does God do? God sends a Messiah, if you will. He sends a deliverer. He sends Moses. And what Moses does is he does, through the power of God, God does this really, is the plagues. Now, here's what we don't understand about the plagues a lot of time. The plagues are not just cool magic tricks and miracles that God is doing. The text explicitly says that the plagues are directed against the so-called gods of Egypt. There are no other gods. The Bible's clear. We're monotheists. There's only one God. But when you worship something false, you don't just worship an idol. You worship a demon. There is something behind the false things that you worship. To say it stronger, Allah is a demon and Ganesh is a demon, etc. So the, Isra- the Egyptians worship all these false gods, these demons. And so when God goes to war against the gods of Egypt, that's what the plagues are about. The Egyptians used to worship the frog god, Heket. And so guess what God does? He multiplies frogs and they pray to Heket and Heket will not take them away because Yahweh is stronger. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile goddess, right? The Nile brings life and brings fruit and food and all that kind of stuff. So what's one of the plagues? God turns the Nile into blood. He's killing the Nile goddess. The Egyptians worshiped the sun god, Ra. And so what's one of the plagues? God blots out the sun. In Egyptian theology, Pharaoh and his family were even thought to be divine. They were thought to be demigods. So in this last plague, what God does is he kills the firstborn of Egypt, including Pharaoh's son, as if to say, you are just a mortal, you are not God like me. So these plagues are really powerful demonstrations of God's power over false religion, false teaching, etc. But, and follow the gospel imagery here, if you will take a lamb's blood and you will mark it over your door, when this destroying angel comes by, he will pass over, what? Is that why we call it that? Yep, he will pass over your house and your family will remain unharmed, okay? And then what you do, because God is bringing deliverance and he brings it swiftly, is you immediately leave. God is bringing you out of slavery, out of bondage, and he's bringing you out into a promised land and so you don't have time to sit around and let the crock pot make your roast, You don't have time to let the bread rise. You just gotta get it and you gotta get out of there. So the reason that he's using this imagery of Passover is as if to say, this idea of getting rid of old leaven means two things. One, God's deliverance comes swiftly. And two, God is giving you a new beginning. He's giving you a brand new start, okay? Exodus 12, 14 through 15. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Deuteronomy 16, one through four. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. And in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. Listen to this. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. So the Passover begins on one night and the very next night begins what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And eventually these two uh, holidays get merged into one. And so it's this, this, this memorial, this remembrance. So what is Paul saying with all that background? Here's what he's simply saying to the church at Corinth. He's saying, be what you already are. Be what you already are. Listen to what I'm about to say, church. This is huge. He's not saying, if you cleanse out the leaven, then you'll be clean. 
If you cleanse out the leaven, then you'll be a new lump. He's saying something much more powerful. He's saying, because you're already a new lump, because you're already clean, don't go back to Egypt spiritually. That sin, in a sense, is an identity crisis, that you forget for a second who you really are in Christ. He's not saying, clean, out your, clean yourself up, do better, cleanse this out, and then you'll be a new lump. He's saying, no, no, no. Because you're already a new lump, you're already clean, you're already forgiven, you're already pure, there's no leaven in you, don't let leaven back in. He's saying be what you already are. It's kind of like in the Old Testament when God tells Joshua to take the land of Canaan. He doesn't say if you take it, then it will be yours. He says take it because I've already given it to you. That God's promise comes first, the free gift comes first. It's essential that you understand Christianity is not, I walk in holiness and then God loves me. It's that God loves me in Christ and therefore I walk in holiness. The difference between heaven and hell can often be that, whether or not you understand that difference. God saves us by grace and therefore we walk in holiness. We do not clean ourselves up. We do not walk in holiness to make God love us, to make God save us. And I want you to underline this if you have it in your Bible. Look at this little phrase where he says, you really are unleavened. I love that. Well, here's what he's saying. Your justification is the most real thing about you. The way that God sees you is your real identity. Are we sinners? Yes, we will be sinners until we die. But is that our primary identity? It is not our primary identity. Our primary identity is as saints, that we are holy and loved and righteous and perfect, 100% righteous and completely forgiven. He's reminding them of that. He's saying, be what you already are. In fact, remember that you really are unleavened. That's the way God sees you. You're not allowed to think of yourself differently than the way God thinks of you. And if he has forgiven you, if he says you're spotless, then you're not allowed to see yourself as not spotless. Look at the next phrase here. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the basis for why he's telling them not to tolerate sin and for their identity as holy people in Christ. Let me say it this way. If you ask a Christian, tell me the most important story in the Bible, what story will we tell? The crucifixion, yes, we'll tell about the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Out of all the stories in the Bible, if you ask a Christian, tell me the most important one, we will say that Jesus died for our sins, lived perfectly on our behalf, died for our sins, was resurrected, one day coming again, salvation is just a gift by his grace. That's the story we'll tell, okay? If you were to ask a Jewish person, tell me the one most important story in the Bible, you know what they would tell you? They would tell you the story of the Exodus. That is the gospel of the Old Testament where God delivers his people whom he's elected out of bondage and he does it by grace. Remember, the Jews in the Old Testament were not saved by works. We think that sometimes. God delivered them out of Egypt why they were grumbling and he gave them his law after he had already delivered them. Salvation in the Old Testament and the New has always been by God's grace. And so what he's doing is he's using this idea of Passover. He's saying this. In the same way that you would slaughter the Passover lamb and you would be delivered, and you would leave the old leaven because you become a new people. He's saying the same thing is true of Christians. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered, we've been given a new beginning. We've been given a new start. And because of that, we are now to leave the leaven of sin behind and walk in this newness. Biblical scholar Joachim Jeremiah says this, to be a Christian means to live in the Passover, in the deliverance from the bondage of sin. That's what Paul is doing by referencing this Passover story. So maybe this will help you. Let me give you some similarities between Israel coming out of Egypt and we as Christians being saved in Christ. In the Old Testament, people were in bondage to Pharaoh. We are in bondage to sin, in a sense as they were. God's people were oppressed by the Egyptians, whereas God's people are oppressed by Satan. 
In the Old Testament, a lamb was killed so God's judgment would pass over his people. In the New Testament, the lamb, capital L, was killed so that God's judgment would pass over his people. Leaven was cleansed out of the house because God was giving a new beginning. Now the leaven of sin should be cleansed out of God's spiritual house, the people of God, the church, because God has given a new beginning. Israel was saved out of Egypt by God's grace, not by their works. Christians are saved by God's grace, not by our works. Passover was a reminder of God's deliverance. Christians are now perpetually in a Passover due to God's deliverance. With Old Testament Israel, Israel was led into a promised land. Christians are now led into a heavenly promised land, the new heavens and new earth. In the Old Testament, God sent a deliverer, Moses. In the New Testament, God is the deliverer, Jesus. Do you see the parallels of what he's saying? That when you were a slave, a lamb was killed and there was no more leaven because you're not a slave anymore. You used to be a slave to sin and a lamb was killed, so don't go back to the leaven because you're not a slave anymore. That's what he's saying by using this Passover imagery. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival, meaning Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I need to say something that's not the main point of verse eight and then go back to it. Notice here that Paul is using allegory. Notice that he's using metaphor. This is something that makes us as Protestants a little uncomfortable. We as Protestants hold to what is called a historical grammatical hermeneutic. What does that mean? When we interpret the Bible, we think the primary ways you should interpret the Bible is first of all, look at the history of what's going on. That's the historical. And then look at the grammatical, look at the context. Look at the words together in syntax to follow the context and understand what's being said. Yes and amen, we should use that. Sometimes though, the biblical authors use an allegorical reading or sometimes they use a metaphorical reading. They're not just taking it with a strict literalism. And by the way, if you really wanna be freaked out, all the early church fathers read the Old Testament allegorically. Only the heretics read every part of it literally. So let that stress you out a little bit. So what the biblical authors will sometimes do is they will take a story, in this case Passover, and they'll give it a metaphorical meaning. But this is not the only place that Paul does this. Galatians 4, 21 through 26, look at this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now look at this. This is the part that stresses me out as an exegete. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. If you've ever heard the phrase that no man can have God as his father if he doesn't have the church as his mother, that's the text we get it from, that the church, the people of God above are called our mother. So notice what Paul is doing though. He's saying this whole story with Abraham isn't just that he had Ishmael and Isaac. He's saying that Ishmael and Isaac stand for something allegorically. Ishmael stands for Jews today that are still under the law because that veil's not been removed in Christ, whereas those who have faith are the children of Isaac. But he also does this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10. Listen to this. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Mm, is that anybody's life verse? Anybody have that tattooed on their arm? Okay, now what is he talking about? In the Old Testament, you would harvest and you would cut down wheat and you'd put it on a threshing floor. And to separate the kernel, the part you can eat, from the, the stalk or the, the, the chaff or whatever, you would have an oxen pull this big heavy rock around to smush all that and to separate those two. Now, as the ox is doing that, he is getting hungry and he's eating some grains of wheat. And the Bible says, let him do it. He's working hard. Now, here's what Paul says. 
Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Meaning no, that's a rhetorical no. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop, okay? So should we interpret the Bible literally? The parts that you should interpret literally, you should interpret literally. Zach, how do I know? You'll have to listen to our series on how to interpret the Bible. We interpret the Bible based on genre. Certain genres like poetry is interpreted differently than historical narrative. What Paul is doing though is he is trying to say that as we look at this Passover story, that is a real literal story. Don't throw out the literal. But there's also this other thing that we're supposed to see and it's this metaphorical meaning of what leaven is and here's what he says leaven is, okay? Not with the old leaven. He says the leaven of malice and evil. Now we know what that is. Malice is what's going on at the church at Corinth. There's infighting, there's division, there's pride. Evil is everything else going on at Corinth. Getting drunk at communion, abusing spiritual gifts. We'll see people going to temple prostitutes, all kinds of terrible things. And he is saying get rid of that old leaven that is evil. Instead, he talks about being unleavened bread. And how does he define that? What metaphor does he give that for that? Sincerity and truth. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain why this is, I'm asking that question. Our culture uses the word sincere, sincerity, completely unlike the Bible. In our culture, to be sincere means to act out however you feel that you are. Never correct yourself, never discipline yourself, never rebuke yourself, never take rebuke from others. To be sincere means whatever you feel like doing, do it. That is not sincerity. Animals do that, literally. It is not brave for you to do what you already want to do. Anyone can do that. It's brave to correct evil desires. It's brave to tell your wicked heart no sometimes. That's true sincerity. So sincerity doesn't just say, ask yourself who you are and then just be who you think you are. Don't ever be corrected. Sincerity and truth in this text actually means the opposite. It means walking in the light. It means allowing the church to rebuke you. It means allowing other people to correct you. It may even mean getting kicked out of the church if you're in unrepentant sin and you refuse to repent. Sincerity and truth, what he's saying is, don't walk in all the malice and evil that you're doing. Instead, walk in holiness, walk in truth. Let me say it stronger. The most real thing about you. So if you ask this question, who am I? What is my highest identity? Your identity and who you are is not what your heart says that it is. It's what God says that it is. Your highest identity, true sincerity, is what God has declared you to be. When God declares you to be a Christian and you're acting out in sin, you're not being sincere. If you really wanna be sincere, you wanna be real, you wanna be authentic, then walk in holiness because that's really what you are. That's what Paul is gonna say with sincerity and truth, okay? Now, that's the text. That's the meaning in its original context. What we try to do at Parkway, what are called expository sermons, is we walk through a portion of the text and explain it in its original context and then we try to bring it home to today. That's what a sermon should be. Here's what it meant originally. Here's what it means today. Oh, and by the way, here's some jokes along the way to keep you interested, Okay. A preacher should be a talking Bible commentary with jokes. So what I want to do now is I want to now take it into 2021. How do we apply this text, which seems like a weird text? You came to church today and now we're talking about bread and someone sleeping with their stepmom. How do we take this text and make it relevant for today? Let me give you what we should do and what we should not do, okay? First of all, what we should do, we should confess our sins. We should confess our sins, not just to God, but to other people, Okay? The Bible commands us to do that. That's not, not just like a Catholic-y thing. The Bible commands us, quote, confess your sins one to another. 
Well, why do we do that, Zach? If God is the one that forgives us, why do I need to tell other humans? Because, to quote Ulrich Zwingli, one of the reformers, we confess our sins to other humans not for the purpose of forgiveness, but for the purpose of counseling so that they might pray for us. They might encourage us. They might hold us accountable. They might text us during the week and remind us that we're forgiven in Christ. So we need to confess our sins one to another. Another thing that we should do, we should hold other people accountable for their sins. Okay? We should hold other people accountable for their sins. It's awkward. It's difficult. Jeff mentioned this last week. It's hard to do. Nobody likes doing that. We don't like being corrected and we don't like correcting others, but we have to. So there are times where I'll have to sit down with somebody and say, hey, listen, this is a really awkward conversation. I know that I'm not the guy to bring this up because I've got so much sin in my own life. Please forgive me. I realize that I'm a wretch, but I see this sin in you. Do you see it? And it's helpful if you ask a question, by the way, instead of just saying, I hate you. You're the worst. It helps to ask a question. Hey, I see this in you. Do you see it? Help me understand what's going on. We're commanded to do that. I've had to have guys do that with me where they sit down and they say, Zach, usually they say something like this. You said something with your dirty mouth you shouldn't have said. And I say, yeah, I probably did that. Okay, I'm sorry. And so they have to rebuke me, whatever it is. Okay, Zach, you're walking in too much anxiety instead of walking in freedom. You know what? You're right, I'm sorry. If we would be open with each other, the church discipline process wouldn't get beyond the first step of going to one to another, just one-on-one. Okay, so we should do that. Another thing we should do is this. Listen to this one. We should have grace for repentant people who sin differently than we do. Okay, let me say it this way. We have a lot of grace for people that sin like we do. So if you struggle with lust and someone else struggles with lust, you totally understand. If you struggle with uh, body image insecurity and someone else struggles with body image insecurity, you totally get it. But we don't have much grace for people when they're repentant if their sins are ones we don't understand. If you're a teetotaler and somebody keeps getting drunk, you just think, why don't you just not get drunk? They're trying, okay? I uh, one time was in a bad depression and somebody literally said this to me. They said, can't you just think of something happy like puppies all day? And I thought, I'm trying. It's not that simple. We have to have grace for people that sin differently than we do. One of my former pastors, a guy named Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible, tells a great story. He had just become a Christian and he was working at a warehouse and one of his coworkers had let his son die for insurance money. One of his coworkers had a sick infant and instead of taking him to the hospital, he knew this and he intentionally let the kid die so he could get insurance money. And this guy was telling Tommy this story. So this is a terrible, awful guy. Later on, Tommy got a chance to share the gospel with him. And he said, I felt the words sticking in my throat. I didn't want to tell this guy he could be forgiven. I didn't want to, I didn't want to call this guy brother because of what he had done. Do you believe that the blood of Christ can cover the most wicked sin? Do you believe it can cover pedophilia? Do you believe it can cover rape? Do you believe it can cover murder? Do you believe it can cover these things? Because if not, you are diminishing and blaspheming the power of the cross, okay? You don't have to understand someone's struggle to let them know that the solution is still the same, that there's forgiveness in Christ. Now, here's what we should not do. Please listen to this. We should not do what I'm about to say. These are not things we should do. These are things we should not do. One, we should not be the sin police, okay? Do not be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. Do not be the sin police. Don't be that guy waiting behind the bushes and someone stubs their toe and curses and you're like, waha, don't be that guy. (laughs) Nobody likes that guy, okay? Don't do that. When I see somebody sin, do you know what I do? Usually nothing. Do you know why? Because I know that if they have the Holy Spirit and they're walking in community with other Christians, I trust the process. I trust that God will work that sin out in them. I really only step in to rebuke them when I see a pattern of unrepentant sin. 
So if you stub your toe and say a curse word, I'm not gonna say anything to you. I'm probably just gonna laugh, right? But if every other word out of your mouth is the F-bomb, at some point I'll probably sit down and say, hey, listen, again, I, I, I fail with my tongue. The Bible says that the tongue is uncontrollable. No man can tame it. But I just need to ask, how are you doing in this area? Because the Bible says to let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. Or if I see you check out a woman that you're not married to, I probably won't say anything. But if I see you check out every woman that walks by, I might ask you, hey, how are you doing in the area of lust? So don't be the sin police, don't be looking for it, but when you see these habitual patterns, that's the time to step in and say, hey man, tell me what's going on. How can I help? How can I pray for you? Are you struggling in this area? Let's help, okay? Don't let sin, sin is like a mushroom. It grows in the dark. Do mushrooms grow in the dark? I say that now, but I didn't look this up. Anybody, anybody, some sort of Scientologist or something that knows? Do mushrooms grow in the dark? No, you don't wanna raise your hand now because I said Scientologist. Anyway, science... Let's go with it. Mushrooms grow in the dark, definitively. There, I've said it. It must be true if it's on the internet. That's how sin is. Sin grows in the dark. When you expose it to the light, then people can root it up. They can get rid of it. But when it's hidden, like what's going on at Corinth where they're doing it and they don't care and they're just ignoring it, that's when it infects the whole lump of dough. Other thing we should not do, do not read your conscience on to others. Okay? We talked about this in Romans 14, one through four. You can listen to the sermon. We're gonna talk about it again in 1 Corinthians. There are things that are what are called adiaphora is the fancy theological term. These are things that the Bible neither commands nor forbids. They're, they're matters of the conscience, okay? This can be like drinking, dancing, gambling, tattoos, whatever it might be. But Zach, tattoos are condemned in Leviticus. We're not under Mosaic law, Okay? I have four tattoos, but you can't see them because I hide them because you church people will judge me. These are adiaphora, okay? These are adiaphora things. These are matters of conscience where the Bible does not command nor forbid dancing. In fact, it actually does command it in celebrating God, but we'll get to that at another point. And so these are not, these, you don't get to read your conscience onto somebody. If somebody's smoking a cigar and you think that's bad, great. There's no verse that condemns that. But your body's a temple. That's about sinning, not physical health, okay? So, Keep that in mind. We we don't rebuke each other. We don't correct each other for things that are just preferences. You might be uncomfortable with some things. Okay, that's okay. The Bible would call you weak. That's not my term. That's the Bible's term. Rather, you should be strong and realize because you're in Christ, that's your righteousness, not, you know, drinking and dancing and whatever it might be, okay? So keep that in mind. I I told this story, but I want to tell it again because I think it's really helpful with this Adi offer stuff. I have a buddy who's an attorney that has, no, that has nothing to do with a story, just, you know, pray for him because attorneys, right? Uh, and so he went into a Brahms to get a Coke float. So he goes into a Brahms and he says, I would like Coke and I would like one scoop of this ice cream. And he pointed to the ice cream and the guy scooped the ice cream, put it in the Coke and he was about to hand it to him and he goes, I don't know if I can give you this. And my buddy goes, I don't know if you failed Brahms school. What do you mean you can't give it? It's already here. Just, just check this out, do this and I'll take it from you. What do you mean you can't give it to me? He goes, I've got to check with my manager. So the guy goes back and he talks to his manager and he comes back and he says, we're not allowed to make these. We have to make them with soft serve ice cream. And he goes, but you've already made it. Like it's there. If you're going to throw it in the trash, just throw it in my hand and we're done. The guy goes, I can't. He goes, okay, I'm going to try a different tactic because he's smart. He's an attorney. He said, okay, cancel that order. I would like to order one Coke and one scoop of ice cream in a cup, please. And the guy goes, no. I know what you're gonna do with it. That's what he said. (laughs) I know what you're gonna do with it, okay? 
Don't be that guy who thinks that it is the height of absurdity to mix this ice cream with a Coke. This is an adiaphora issue. So don't rebuke each other for that. There'll be things that some Christians are comfortable with and others are not, and we don't rebuke each other over that. The Bible's actually gonna tell us that there should still be mutual love, that those who are stronger in Christ should not look down on the weak, and those who are weaker should not judge the strong. We'll talk more about that in 1 Corinthians, but keep that in mind with this. Let me end with the gospel. I want you to see two things about this text. First, I want you to understand that what Paul is saying is not clean yourself up. He is saying, as we've already mentioned, I just wanna mention it again, if you know Christ, you are already a new lump. You're already forgiven, okay? The reason you get rid of leaven in your life, you get rid of sin, is because you're already sinless in Christ. You are not trying to become pure. You're already pure. You're not trying to get God to forgive you. He's already forgiven you. You're not trying to be perfect. You are already perfect, as perfect as Christ, if you know Christ, What's true of him status-wise is true of you when it comes to righteousness. You have no sin, you are spotless, you are pure. That is your motivation for walking in holiness. I want you to walk in holiness, but if you try to walk in holiness, you'll become worse. The way you walk in holiness is by realizing that God loves you even if you never walk in holiness. That you're already that new lump in Christ. You don't do things to get that. That's where you start in Christ and therefore you can fight sin. The other thing I want you to see, and this hit me like a ton of bricks studying this text. It was so powerful. How does Paul preach the gospel and somebody come to the conclusion that therefore they can sleep with their stepmom? Here's how. That's how much grace Paul preaches. Paul preaches the gospel so freely that somebody says, if what you're saying is right, then I can still be a Christian and I can walk in all this sin. Now, they've misunderstood They cannot walk in all that sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, how do they come to that conclusion? When Paul preaches the gospel in Romans and they say, well, then if what you're saying is true, Paul, we should sin all the more so that grace may abound. They're misunderstanding, but the reason that they're misunderstanding is because Paul preaches grace that freely. You see, we don't usually preach the gospel that freely today. We say you're saved in Christ, but you better do X, Y, and Z or else God will be mad at you again. Paul preaches the gospel so freely. If when you preach the gospel to somebody, they don't say, well, this means I can sleep with my stepmom. You're not preaching a truly free grace of gospel, okay? Think about what I'm saying. That makes the gospel sound scandalous. It is scandalous, okay? There is so much free. Usually when you hear the gospel preached in America, there are so many caveats and so much legalism that no church would ever come to these conclusions that Romans and 1 Corinthians are coming to. How come? Because we've perverted the gospel a little bit. When Paul preaches the gospel, it is so grace-filled that he has to deal with the licentiousness, whereas we always have to deal with the legalism. So let me be clear. I'm not saying you should walk in sin. Sin is not okay. Sin is not safe. Sin is dangerous. The Corinthians and the Romans, in this analogy, misunderstand grace. What I'm saying is, the kernel of what they are understanding is probably better than you or I. They understand God's love so much, they understand God's grace so much that they're tempted to just walk in sin. What's so amazing about the gospel is when you finally realize that you could commit all this sin and God would still love you, you just don't want to do that anymore. You just want to commit those sins less because you're so overwhelmed at a gracious God that it takes away that fear, that perfect love cast out fear. So just to be clear, I'm not encouraging sin. I'm not saying sin is okay. I don't actually want you committing sexual immorality, okay? Keep that in mind. What I'm saying is the way that you actually avoid sexual immorality is not by pulling the reins on grace. It's by leaning into grace. It's by hitting the gas pedal of grace. It's by hitting the accelerator of grace. The more you understand God's love for you, the less you will want to sin. 
The more you try not to sin, the more you actually will. That's the irony there. Let's pray and we'll take communion, celebrating something that represents the Passover. Dear God, we thank you for today and we thank you for this text. We pray that you would help us with it. We confess that we are broken and we are sinful. And there's no doubt some senses of of leaven in our church. We just ask that you'd protect us. We thank you that we're already new dough in Christ. We're already cleansed. It's done, it's over. I think too many of us still think of salvation that's something that's only in the future. When I die, then I can be saved. Instead of realizing that it's already done now. We're saved, we're loved, we're forgiven. We can't lose it, we've already won. We get to live in constant victory. We get to live in constant Passover. Would you help us remember that? We love you and we thank you. It's for your name and your glory that we pray. Amen.